topic. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, thanks for the invite. It's our pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, maybe you can let our uh, audience and listeners know uh, what it is you do, what keeps you busy. Uh, well, I'm a professor of philosophy. I teach at Rockford University in the United States, just outside of Chicago. And I uh, specialize in uh, uh, major philosophers of the European tradition. Uh, so especially uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, whom I understand we're going to talk about today, probably the most influential philosopher on 20th century philosophy, uh, but not only philosophy, also political and cultural movements. For sure. And if I'm not mistaken, and you'll be a better place to kind of appreciate than this than me, Nietzsche seems to have a seems to have had a bit of a resurgence in, mm. in recent years. He seems to have found a new generation, seen a lot more references to it online. I'm not sure if that's perhaps a Jordan Peterson influence. I seem to think mm. that Jordan Peterson speaks about him a lot. But maybe you can explain to us why Nietzsche is so important uh, from a philosophical standpoint. Why does he stand out to you? Well, first on the on the resurgence point, yeah, his uh, his reputation's gone up and down, mostly up over the course of the 20th century. He died in 1900, and I don't think it's an understatement to say that he's the most read and most influential philosopher of the of the 20th century, even though he died in the 1900s. Uh, and the interesting thing about him is that people all over the political spectrum, from uh, you know the liberal capitalists to far right fascists to Marxists, uh, have read and learned from him. People who are explicitly atheist and people who are strongly theistic in various communities, Jewish, Christian, and other, have all uh, read and responded to, uh, to Nietzsche. So his influence is, uh, is, is everywhere. Now, what's, what's important about him, though, is that he is one of the few philosophers who has had something fundamental to say on all of the, all of the issues in a fresh and original way. It's very hard in the history of philosophy to say something new, but Nietzsche did. And he also was a great stylist, uh, so he has a way of writing that makes you respond to him. He pushes your buttons not only intellectually, but also emotionally. So some of his more famous uh, phrases are, you know, that which does not kill me, and pretty much all of us can fill in the end of that one, makes me stronger, right? Or the, the admonition to, uh, to live dangerously in one's life, a kind of high romanticism of life that often uh, it goes against the cynicism and the world weariness that's characteristic of much of 20th century uh, intellectual life. He also, though, uh, is most notorious for his uh, anti-Christian stance. Uh, uh, Anti-theology, a move toward atheism, was characteristic of the modern world as we became more rational, more scientific. But Christ uh, Nietzsche was one of the very few who also went after Christianity, not simply for having... Uh, and not being able to prove the existence of God and, and requiring faith and so on, but arguing that its moral code with its emphasis on martyrdom and meekness and forgiveness was actually unhealthy and a kind of uh, psychological sickness. So his advocacy of that and, and putting it in a very strong rhetorical form made him a real outlier such that pretty much everybody intellectually needs to engage with him in some form. That's interesting for sure. Um... So, I mean, you said something really interesting as well uh, in there about, you know, it's difficult for philosophy to kind of generate uh, new ideas or icons or ideas that haven't been already been generated. And I, hear, I, I see that criticism leveled at the field of philosophy quite a lot. It's sometimes thrown into the kind of, I suppose, the same bracket as theology in that sense, in the mm. sense that 
you know, we have this pantheon of knowledge and it seems to be that new philosophies are just kind of reinterpretations of the old classics. And I suppose, I mean, first of all, would you say that's true? And second, what what kind of draws you to the world of um, philosophy, knowing that, it, you know, there, there are, it feels almost like a closed avenue in many senses? Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that all of the major possibilities philosophically were staked out by the Greeks, you know, they were just you know, brilliant 2,500, 2,400 years ago. So there's a reason we all know the names Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and so on. Uh, and so uh, one, I think this is not a true, but one way of characterizing philosophy is to say that one is then working on variations within those very broad traditions. And every generation needs to rediscover those traditions. I think it's part of the natural development of a an intelligent, open-minded young person to think about all of the important issues. And uh, 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 you'll come to the same issues that human beings who have been thoughtful will always come to and uh, adopt one of or more of those positions. At the same time, I don't think that philosophy has been stagnant uh, because uh, it, what has happened in the history of philosophy is uh, questions that were unanswerable. People were banging their heads against them and trying all sorts of alternatives for centuries suddenly uh, someone would have a new wrinkle on it and things would go off in a significant direction. So in the early modern for world, for example, the, the more naturalistic investigations, the idea that we can study the world with our senses and do experimental methods, that was a, a new idea systematic and that's what made possible the development of modern science. So what we call physics and chemistry and biology and even psychology now is distinct sciences did not used to be sciences they were still matters of philosophical speculation but we worked at them until we found a, a lever so to speak or a hook to be able to finally start doing them in a more scientific fashion and then great progress has been made so the residual set of questions that we're still banging our heads against and having all of the debates about uh, the attitude then is well we need to keep working at it so uh, uh, eventually we will get that hook and make the progress yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And I mean, what, what, how can we use the teachings of Nietzsche today? I mean, how are they, how are they most commonly applied? I mean, it's like we, we mentioned at the start of the conversation, the it's the, you know the the popularity of his work it just done nothing but grow really. So I mean, what how, what can we look at to be used uh, in you know today in the 2024 that Nietzsche yeah. was a proponent yeah. of? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. But I think uh, it's all over the map, and it really will depend on what part of Nietzsche you are interested in. Probably the most common uh, uh, and interesting part of Nietzsche is the one when people read Nietzsche for the first time and you're a young person, you're smart, you're, you're trying to figure everything out about the world, you want to do something significant with your life. Nietzsche seems like a kindred spirit to you because he is high romantic, life is adventure, life is conflict, go out and, and, and be the best person that you can be. Don't let all kinds of irrational conventions and uh, any mediocrities and cowardices that you see all around you stop you from being the best best version of yourself. So that's one that's version. Like a motivational of, speaker, isn't he? Oh, yeah, in that sense. yeah, that's right. He's, yeah. he's, he's probably the most motivational philosopher speaker of the 20th century. There's a couple of others we could mention, but he would be in the uh, in the top three. Now, then I think it depends what parts of Nietzsche, uh, more specifically though, uh, when you ask, well, what does this great adventure of life consist in? And then different parts of Nietzsche speak to uh, other people. Some people will want to say that the, the right reading of Nietzsche is to say that Nietzsche has said that all of the traditional ideas of truth have been exploded. 
And the right answer is that there is no such thing as truth. And so what you need to do is just believe, so to speak, your own inner truth and create whatever you want, however destructive that can needs to be with respect to other people, their agendas and even their lives and using other people's. So you can have a certain kind of master morality type of person who's willing then to see as their great life adventure conquering other people and taking their stuff uh, as a, and using Nietzsche as an excuse to, uh, to, to becoming a kind of ubermensch or a kind of superman, or uh, to see uh, it as uh, going after all of the old religions and philosophies of the past and being an iconoclast, uh, that you see your project, as Nietzsche often did, as poking uh, holes in other people's, uh, uh, puncturing their balloons, pointing out their hypocrisies, and all of the dark psychological motivations. And so you have the kind of person who then is a Nietzschean cynic, but uh, is nearly not very much fun at a party because he's always attacking people and pointing <laughs> out their hypocrisies and, and, and looking for a darker story underlying everything. And that also comes out of, out of uh, Nietzsche. Paradoxically, much of the far left right now uh, adopts a certain kind of Nietzschean. So if you think about Postmodernism and it's uh, and it's uh, it's kind of nihilistic streak. Many of the postmodernists will say that they are doing a reading of Nietzsche, but they're putting uh, Nietzsche in the service of a kind of far left politics. And then also, even more notoriously, uh, the the Nazis, the National Socialists, the, the the major intellectual leadership and the political leadership all saw themselves as disciples of Nietzsche, and so they took certain things of his political and some of his philosophical views and took them in, a, in that particular philosophical direction. So one of the things about Nietzsche is that he is, uh, I don't want to say he's all over the map, but uh, there are elements in Nietzsche that almost anybody with any agenda can find and use to <laughs> use to their purposes. I mean, talking of the far left, though, I mean, it just it makes me think about the way that historical figures are now often filtered through the norms of our time. And, yeah. you know, people are, uh, are chastised that are no longer with us for, quote unquote, problematic language or views they had. And they, they're often, you know, there's often calls for them to be removed from the, this, uh, the syllabus or not taught in academic settings sure. and things like that. Has sure. Nietzsche, into your mind, ever kind of fell uh, foul of campaigns of this sort? Well, yeah, Nietzsche would have nothing but disgust for uh, cancel culture. He would see it as a kind of cowardice, and it is a kind of cowardice. Anytime you say, oh, that hurts my feelings, right, or that view uh, offends me in some way, and so your only reaction is to try to get the person, you know, get a mob of people together and hide in the crowd and wear a mask and get that person. That's, those are the tactics of people who are intellectual and, and moral cowards, and Nietzsche would have you know, nothing but, but disdain for them. You know, his view is that life is about conflict, life is about suffering, life is about uh, finding great adversaries and making the and engaging with those great adversaries because they're going to make you be a better version of yourself. So in that sense, he's the opposite of, of cancel culture. But there are then other parts of Nietzsche that the cancel cultural words uh, will use. They use some some of the, uh, uh, you know, there is no such thing as truth. Everything is just a power struggle, and we're just using our tools of power, the ones that we happen to have. So that's a kind of Nietzscheanism Sounds as very well. Postmodern. Yes, no, absolutely is postmodern. So, yeah, that uh, the, yeah, the double standard that is characteristic of postmodern, where you will claim to be you know, against oppression, against violence, and so on, but you're quite happy to oppress and violent, be violent when you have the tools of power at your at your disposal. That 
that, that hypocrisy would rankle someone like Nietzsche. He, Nietzsche would say, if you're going to stick someone, a knife in someone, stick it facing the person. Don't stick them in the back. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he's much more confrontational and honest, at least in, in his uh, confrontationalism. Okay, that's a great answer. And uh, something that piques my interest with, with you talking about the fact that he wasn't simply, in regards to religion, rather, he wasn't simply somebody who doubted the, you know, the kind of veracity of the supernatural claims of religion. He, he was, he was more to what it was aligned more towards anti anti theism in, in the sense that he would say these, even if these ideas are true, they're they're you know they're bad. Uh, and I, I I feel like for someone like me to do that today it would be completely risk-free and almost pointless in this kind of church of england christian environment that i'm in in the uk but back in the day those kind of kind of investigations and comments were would have took a fair bit of courage i would have imagined yeah more so in the in the late 19th century and i think it's it's fair to say german uh, Nietzsche was a german and german uh, intellectual culture in the 1900s was um uh, it was quite safe to be anti-Christian right at that point. So the debates had been had been engaged. Uh, in the 1700s, it was more risky. In the 1600s, more risky, uh, even even more so. Uh, and so by now, we have uh, not only kind of a culture where people are expected to look at all of the arguments for and against uh, uh, religion, and that that's uh, kind of an intellectual obligation. We've gotten way past uh, any sort of dogmatism. Uh, but also we, we're a culture of tolerance where we have uh, expected people to disagree and uh, leave people free to go their own way religiously. So that was largely in place by the time we got to Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's generation. So uh, it is interesting, though, that he was, uh, unlike most atheists of his time, uh, saying more than just that Christianity is a failed theology, a failed metaphysics, that we don't need to explain the universe by means of God, or we shouldn't tell people just to accept things on faith and be dogmatic. Uh, the really arresting thing in him was his rejection of the idea that Christian morality is good and decent, because even most atheists of the uh, of the 1800s would say, well, at least Christianity has its heart in the right place, right? It's a it's a nice ethic, and it's going it's about peace and forgiveness and so on. And Nietzsche is having has a, having none of that. He thinks it's a it's a uh, when he pushes it, he, it's a religion of psychological sickness. He uses that language. Uh, you know, the, the kind of person, you know, if, if, uh, I don't know, if you're a male, so I'll, I'll use a kind of a male, male ex example. You know, the idea is some, some man just walks up to you and starts insulting you. Right? Well, what should you as a man do? You know, your natural reaction is to say, hey, don't do that. You know, the guy gives you a shove, you shove him back. And you will engage in you know verbal insults, <laughs> and as kids, we're all supposed to practice uh, our verbal wordplay and learn self-defense, so that when we have to fight, as sometimes we have to as men, I'm not speaking in my own voice; I'm speaking in a Nietzschean voice here now. <laughs> you're going to stand up for yourself. You're not going to take any crap from anybody, and if necessary, you're going to strive to be the dominant male in order to protect what's yours in uh, in the world. And Nietzsche says that's all fine, that's all healthy. But what does Christianity do? Well, Christianity says, you know, be more like a lamb. Someone sl smacks you across the face, you're, you're supposed to, you know, offer him the other cheek. Someone insults you and trips you and pushes you down, you're supposed to forgive him in some sort of way. So Nietzsche, you know, to use our language just to say, uh, would say that Christianity really is a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, 
it's an ethical philosophy for beta males or even gamma <laughs> males. Right? Where it's for weaklings who are rationalizing what they know to be their weakness. So they can't stand up for themselves in the world. The world is going to push them around and they're kind of scared of the world anyway. So they invent this moral code that says, why don't we all you know, be nice to each other and stick together? And uh, it's basically a morality for sheep. And that's the language that, that Nietzsche used. But instead, what human beings need to do is recognize that we are predators. Uh, this is now late 1800s. This is after evolutionary theory, Darwin, survival of the fittest. That's not Darwin's phrase. But we are top apex predators. We got there for a reason. Human evolution is not over. And it's not going to be a morality that says be more like a sheep or be more like a bunny rabbit that's going to advance human beings. It's going to be rather a moral code that prizes aggression and dominance and a willingness to fight for your vision of what the world should be. That's what it is to be a man. That's what it is to be a human being more broadly. That's what's going to take the human being in the next evolutionary direction. That's a good answer. I don't think I've quite heard Christianity interpreted in that way before. The kind of, you know, almost using it as a justification for your own failures uh, as a sort of, uh, you know, alpha male. That's that's really interesting. And I, I suppose what's also interesting to me is, I mean, you've already mentioned in this discussion already that a lot of people will kind of take Nisha as their own and claim they understand what he wants and means. And that gets you some kooky ideas on the far left some kooky ideas on the far right uh however you numerous times in this conversation have said you know this is what Nietzsche would think this is what he'd say how do you know you've got the objective reading uh -huh. of what Nietzsche thought well what we yeah what we'd have to do then is get some Nietzschean texts before us and sit down and uh, and 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 read them so um and that would be then part of my my intellectual <laughs> obligation so when I say Nietzsche would say this here's the passage from Nietzsche that supports my my that and you can argue with me or agree with me, and uh, I think I could make a pretty good case. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, how important is philosophy on on campuses now to a new generation? Just in the sense of the you know the dialect, the way of getting conversations going, the way of in get, investigating our thoughts, and kind of trying to discover how we know what we do know, rather than just sort of regurgitating dogma. I mean, I suppose what I'm getting, guys, how. How important is it in fostering the idea that we should be more open to debate and opposing views? Yeah. Well, I think it should be very important for exactly the reasons you just articulated right so well. You know, philosophy, I think, is fundamentally our set of tools for developing our worldviews. And as, as human beings, we need to do that, to have an articulate working through about what we think the world is, how we're going to use our minds, what values we're going to commit to, what we're going to take the meaning of our lives to be uh, and, and to go for it. That's what the philosophical project is. Uh, but also uh, in, your, in your, your question, though, you're asking on campuses today, and philosophy is in a decline phase institutionally right now, fewer majors. Uh, so philosophers are being laid off and not being hired on a fairly regular basis. Enrollments have been declining significantly in, in philosophy courses. There's a few reasons for that. One, I think, is not so much uh, due to philosophy itself. I think that uh, a lot of people are not willing to go into debt or to spend a significant amount of time in what they see as an uncertain economy. They want to uh, get a degree that they're pretty sure is going to lead to uh, a job shortly thereafter. Uh, and philosophy is a harder sell uh, to, uh, to 18 and 19 year olds and their parents when, when they're making that kind of decision. I think also though, 
perhaps a more important factor has been an internal to uh, uh, to philosophy factor. You mentioned postmodernism, for example, and philosophy has been in a somewhat skeptical phase. Uh, if I scale out for the last hundred years, the last fifty years or so, and if philosophy and, and, and to, to the extent of committing a kind of suicide, where you have a significant number of leading philosophers saying. We have no answers, right? There are no answers. We don't think there even is such a thing as philosophy as a discipline. And that leads to a kind of self-dissolution. And postmodernism comes out of that intellectual tradition. And it's kind of a natural, uh, <laughs> if that's your marketing pitch, we have no answers. This is not going to be useful to you. And people will listen to you and say, well, I'm, then I'm going to go and study something that is, in fact, more useful. And uh, so there's been a uh, students marching with their feet into other majors for that reason as well yeah that's not great pr is it i suppose so i mean harking back to this because i i'm really fascinated with i was speaking to a guest previously i i was at university quite some time ago i'm nearly 40 now and there was almost an attitude of anything goes you know it was almost the you know you was almost propelled to be as edgy as possible to the point mm. where that was boring and normal you know uh, and now it seems to be a kind of almost like a self-censorship uh kind of attitude for younger people on campus there's a kind of resurgence of banning certain words even calls for banning certain books yep. and things like that and i'm just kind of wondering how how much this feeds into academic freedom in the in the field of philosophy to investigate things openly because obviously philosophy will take you to very kind of niche esoteric and very taboo and controversial topics sometimes. And, and I'm just wondering how, how difficult that climate may be. Yeah, that's right. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. how difficult has, the, has that has philosophy, its open investigation, been made by the current climate of a sort of self-censorship? No, I think you're exactly right that there has been a generational cultural shift. So when you were younger, when I was younger, yeah, the ethos of higher education was very much the, uh, the liberal education ideal. That is to say, you should be a free thinker. And you should think about everything important and you should be willing to entertain outlandish ideas and outlandish ideas actually do a service to you because they, they uh, shake you out of your complacent zone and they make you figure out what you really do know from what you don't don't really know. Uh, and so having an atmosphere in which uh, all of the weird ideas are going to be out there, including all of the established ideas and students are going to be encouraged to go through that process. That is the, uh, the liberal uh, education ethos. What has happened, though, is uh, I think the, the story is more complicated this, but there has been a resurgence of a kind of authoritarianism that has come out. Once you believe, uh, as uh, postmoderns will tell you, that there are no answers, there are no truths, we're not rational beings, that logic is just an invention of, say, white uh, male supremacists and so forth, then what you do is you have a different ethos that says we should not then try to be rational and logical and look at both sides of a debate. Instead, we will take a, a kind of Nietzschean theme and say everything just is power. Everything just is struggle. So what you should do is just take whatever your value agenda is and uh, enter into the fray and try to impose your agenda on everyone else. That's the new ethos. It's not a liberal education discussion, debate, everything, and make up your own mind. It's to see the world as divided into groups that have different agendas that cannot be rationally uh, uh, um, debated and decided upon. And so all we can do is, uh, is have this power struggle. 
And as it's happened, some groups have been more organized and uh, better strategists in that power struggle. They've gotten themselves in a position then to be able to shut down views that they disagree with and not allow them to be spoken so that only their views can be uh, uh, on, on the university platforms. Yeah, and there seems to be a, a very, very much a, an aspect of controlling language as well. What words mean? I don't know if yes. obviously you'll be be familiar with this this term dog whistle. I often hear now that when people call for sort of diversity of thought or you know uh, freedom of expression, these are these are termed as dog whistles for the far right now. Mm. So I, I mean, I suppose I'm what, what I'm trying to get at is like, are universities in the states doomed? Because I get very deeply concerned uh, for, for by a lot of the things I'm I'm seeing coming out of campus in terms of you know student yeah. movements and you know uh, people academics getting in serious trouble for for saying things that were fairly uncontroversial a whole yeah. five minutes ago. Right. No, I think I, I think doomed is too strong. I think we are in a serious fight. I think uh, many professors and many students who've learned from those professors are seriously irresponsible. They're actually you know, anti-intellectual, anti-activists, and they have significant platforms at many universities right now. And part of it is exactly this dog whistle stuff where you reinterpret uh, uh, language that you don't like uh, in, in politicized terms, like calling uh, something that is in fact a neutral term. We should have debates about important things, just dismissing that in an ad hominem way as coming from a particular part of the uh, uh, political spectrum that you don't, uh, you don't happen to like. And all of that is, uh, it's intellectually dishonest, but it is a, a useful power play. Uh, and uh, you know, language does have its power. And those who have been able to use language more effectively have uh, have more power in a place like a university, which is largely largely language driven. But I don't think we are doomed. I think because uh, you know, we're having conversations like this, and now uh, you know, a, a generation ago, people didn't realize they had this institutional shift that had gone on in the ethos, and so the the new cultural authoritarians, the new dictators of language and so forth were put, getting themselves into positions of power uh, in somewhat stealthy fashion and people were not aware of it, but they now are aware of it. So we are having huge national and international conversations about exactly this issue. People are getting up to speed. Many of the uh, the uh, the counselor, or counselors rather, uh, who are in positions of power are retiring. Various student groups are being moved. Many universities are starting to reaffirm their freedom of speech platforms uh, uh, as a result of this. Uh, in many cases, uh, this is more in the United States uh, where many of the universities are kept going by million dollar donations from their alumni. Those checks are not being written anymore and people are paying attention to those checks not being written. Students are not majoring in the worst of the uh, academic disciplines. They're taking courses in other areas. So I think the, the reaction is, uh, is proceeding apace and there will be significant to significant reform. The other thing I'm also encouraged by though, is that we're in a very entrepreneurial phase now with respect to education. There are lots of new colleges being founded uh, online and, and actual traditional bricks and mortar ones with new pedagogies. And some of them are explicitly uh, being formed. People putting you know, millions of dollars, millions of pounds into these institutions because the traditional institutions are failing and they're giving people an alternative. So there's a healthy marketplace of ideas and marketplace of uh, higher educational institutions that is starting to develop partly into reaction to that. And I think all of that is, is good.
You've turned me around again. I'm no longer I'm no longer on the side side of doom mongering. You've, you've convinced <laughs> me, Stephen. I'm an optimist in this area now. I suppose okay. uh, I in the time that, be, be so worried but cautiously optimistic. That's my stance. That's, that's that's a good that's a good rule of thumb. I mean, say for instance, if somebody is not uh, familiar with Nisha, what would be a good entry point for them? What what mm. should they pick up? What should they look at? Ah, that's a, that's a very good question. I like to say maybe the genealogy of morals. Uh, genealogy of morals. It's three essays that he collected together after he wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil, which has a very sexy title. That's the one most people typically gravitate to uh, first. But I would say go with the immediate follow-up book, Genealogy of Moral, which presents the same themes a little more systematically, a little more clearly, and then go from there. That's great. Stephen, this has flown by. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I've learned a lot as well, which is always which is always good for me from a selfish point of view. Uh, where can people find uh, more of your work and more about you? Well, my website, stephenhicks.org. I publish there. And uh, my center, uh, CEE video channel, we have a YouTube channel where I have lectures and podcasts and guest speakers and so on. So I would say, yeah, CEE video channel or stephenhicks.org. Excellent. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us. All right. See you next time, hopefully.